You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Great final words before a message. Stay awake. (laughs) Every pastor wants to title a sermon, stay awake at some point. So there it is. Mark chapter 13. If you have a Bible, if you haven't turned there yet, please turn there. We didn't read all of the passage. It's a long chapter. Um, But it's kind of wild, I got to tell you, okay? Mark chapter 13 is um, some strange things written in there. And uh, the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, where Jesus tells the very same thing with a few more details or a few different details, is kind of tough to wrap your mind around, okay? And, And most weeks... I uh, consult different commentaries and different books, and it was pretty much a resounding theme on all of them. And so I thought I would just show you kind of what I was reading this week. Pillar's commentary says this, This is one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand. William Lane, who's kind of the go-to for the Gospel of Mark in terms of his understanding, says this, There is no passage more problematic than this prophetic discourse of Jesus. And then Kent Hughes says, By far the most difficult passage in Mark, and along with its parallels in the other Gospels, one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. Kent goes on to say this, The fact is we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the naughty problems of the Olivet Discourse, which is what this text is called. So I am not going to untie the knot this morning, okay? If, uh, if you thought that I was going to do that, apparently I can't even do it, okay? So it's impossible for me to do it, so I'm not going to do it. Um, but Mark 13 and the other passages are what we know as um, prophetic or end times teaching. And for, for some people, they love this, okay? That may be you sitting in there, or you may know someone who you just, you eat this stuff up all day. This is like dessert to you, right? You're just on this stuff all the time. And it is something that captivates the Christian world, and I don't know if you remember, probably all of you do, you remember those Left Behind books? Who read like a portion or one of those Left Behind books? Anybody? Okay, yeah, I read the first one. Those were massive, right? They came out in 1995, mid-90s, extended well, at like a decade and a half or more. Um, Wiki says that 80 million copies have been sold, okay, from the Left Behind series. And uh, I read an article this week where Tyndale Publishing, at the height of the Left Behind popularity, it was 50% of the company's revenue, okay? So massive deal. People were eating it up and just loving it until the Nick Cage movie came out, right? I didn't see it, but it just, it went downhill supposedly from there. But there is a heightened interest when it comes to all things end times. But at the same time, there is others who have, uh, maybe, maybe hate is the strong word, but have like really negative connotations when it comes to end times. Just this week, 
I was just happened to be looking on CNN on the news, and I don't know if you saw it, but there was an article about uh, the trauma that someone had experienced in living in a family that was all about uh, end time stuff and living kind of under that conviction of never knowing, you know, is Jesus going to come back? Am I ready for him? Am I going to be left behind? You know, am I going to be the one, you know, all my family's gone and their clothes are left in a pile there, whatever it was. They were living under the kind of the stress of that. I mean, I remember being in a church in the 80s, maybe some of you remember this, watching Thief in the Night, right? This was like almost horror movie, not quite, not quite horror movie, um, but it was like, you know, all the like scary stuff that would happen and I mean, it had tanks, it had guillotines, it had everything, right? And you were like, I don't want to be left behind. And so for some people, they're like, I don't like that at all because it conjures up really negative feelings and feelings of guilt, and I just want no part of it. And then maybe the, maybe the larger group of us is just like, this whole thing kind of confuses me. I don't know where to go with it or what to do with it. And so one of the, the beautiful things of going through a book is we just like can't skip anything, okay? So we're just like taking it verse by verse. And so this week, we're taking the whole chapter, like, We've spent five weeks in chapter 12, and now we're doing Mark 13 in one Sunday. So buckle up, okay? We're just going to try and do our best with it. We're not going to be able to go verse by verse through all of it, but we're going to take it in chunks and see what it has to say to us. And then we're going to really land the plane, spend the majority of our time hopefully talking about what is clear from the passage. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So if you have your Bible, look at verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13. It says this, And as he came, this is Jesus, as he came out of the temple. So Jesus, remember, in chapter 12, has been dealing with questions from religious leaders and has been answering them and then has ended with asking them some questions. Now he's leaving the temple. This is it. He doesn't go back to the temple He is leaving the temple for the last time of his earthly life. And as he's walking out, it says this, The disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So as Jesus is leaving the compound there with his disciples. One of the disciples, we don't know which one, says, man, like, look at this place. And I don't know if it's just they were interested in the architecture or if they were just impressed with the, all that was happening, the sacrificial system. We're not sure what it is, but they walk out feeling awe and inspiration by the building that they are leaving. And it was a inspiring building. It was one of the wonders of the world. I kind of got a graphic here to help you kind of get a glimpse of what this would have looked like. It was the size of, they say it's the size of 12 football fields, this massive complex that had been built over a span of Jesus' whole life. Herod began the construction of this new temple before Jesus was born, and it wasn't finished till around mid-60s A.D., 
So the whole time the disciples were growing up, they saw this thing under construction. A beautiful complex of buildings and porches. And in the middle is the temple. This building that is gleaming with white limestone covered in um, massive amounts of gold on different pillars and walls, all kinds of artifacts in there, f- pure gold. It was, it was a beautiful thing to see. Some of the blocks that were used as a foundation were 30 feet by 12 feet high by 18 feet wide. That's like the size of a shipping container almost. That is how large the foundation stones were for this building. So you can kind of see how the disciples walking out I mean, maybe that shouldn't be the first thing on their mind, but if they're really into architecture, they're like, this place is magnificent. And maybe even everything that it, like the nationalism and the Jewish mindset that is drawn into this temple is what caught them. And now Jesus says, okay, you're impressed with this building? He says, this building is going to come down rock by rock, totally going to be dismantled. Now imagine like, in your mind's eye, if someone said something like that to you. I don't know what the equivalent is for us. Like, think someone said, like, the CN Tower, okay? So the building that's, like, very impressive in, you know, X amount of years is going to be destroyed. You'd be like, okay, how do you know that, first of all? But you can't even picture the Toronto skyline without it. That's what's going on here in this text. They, Jesus is giving them a prophetic word of what's going to happen. And, and we now, looking back, actually know that that did happen in 70 AD. So Jesus is saying this in around 30. And Mark records this, all this teaching for us in around the mid-50s of AD. And the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus has this word of prophecy for them. Nobody knew at the time that, you know, Israel would rebel against Rome and that they would finally, you know, take their last stand in, in the mid-60s. And Vespasian, the emperor, would send Titus and say, okay, shut this rebellion down now. And so Titus came with his armies, surrounded Jerusalem eventually breaking into Jerusalem, and then they took over the whole city. And the plan was never to destroy the Temple Mount site. The plan was actually to keep it. But history has it that one of the soldiers lit part of the temple on fire, and the whole thing went up in flames. And as it was burning, all the gold that was on the walls and the doors melted and dripped right into the cracks of all the stones And so to get the gold back, to fund, you know, armies and the Roman Empire and all that kind of stuff, they completely destroyed the temple, tearing it stone by stone. And still to this day, you can go to Jerusalem and see rubble from that 2,000-year-old destruction of the temple. It's still kind of laying there. You can look at those. And the reason was to get at the gold and to get everything valuable from that battle. And so Jesus' prophecy comes true. We can see that looking back on history. But as he says this, the disciples are pondering it. Okay, He says it on the way out. And then look at verse 3 and verse 4. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus says that walking out the door that the temple is going to be destroyed and they're just like, okay, that's a, that's a big statement. The whole walk over through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, then they're like, okay, Jesus, if the temple is going to be destroyed, that has to be the end of time. In their minds, there's no other way to make sense of this. That's got to be the end of the age. If the temple is going to be destroyed, the end of the age has to come. And so they say, tell us about this. Tell us about the end of the age. What is it going to look like? What's going to happen? When are, when are we going to know that this is going to be happening so that we can be prepared for this cataclysmic event where the temple is destroyed? And so that's what... Mark 13 is trying to do. Mark 13 is the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives. And he's trying to explain to them what is going to happen at the end of time. Now the challenge with this text is that there is different ways of reading it. In a super simple interp way, there's three ways of kind of looking at this which helps different people interpret this text differently, okay? And I've put it on the screen like this. Either all the things that we're about to look at in Mark 13 have happened already, so they're all in our past. They've all happened within the first century of the church. Or the second option is some of them happened, but some of them are in the future, so it's kind of near and far. Or third option, all of them are in the future, Okay, so everyone tracking still? This is a little bit of like a class here today, okay? Things have all happened already. Some of them have happened, but more are coming in the future, or everything is in the future. And honestly, if you read some commentaries, there's all kinds of flavors in between that as well, okay? But just kind of bare bones, that's, that's what we're looking at here. And so as we read different portions of the text, You'll be able to see, and you can even look for yourself as you're reading different chunks, where you're like, it seems like that may have happened already. Or maybe you're like, no, that part can't have happened yet. That's got to be in the future. Okay, so we're just going to look at a few examples. I don't have the text here on the slide, so I recommend you having your Bible with you so that you can follow along, okay? And this is just to kind of highlight the difference in understanding and interpretation on different parts of this text, and we're not going to go through all of it. The first section is in verses 5 through 13, right in the beginning where Jesus is starting to explain what is going to happen to them. And in verse 7, it says this, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9 says this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So people who kind of subscribe to this, it's all happened already, 
would look at verse 9, let's say, and they would say, that sounds like a, like the retelling of what the book of Acts is telling us. Like in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers are brought before councils. They're beaten in synagogues. They stand before governors. This is like word for word. We could just pull this right out of the book of Acts. So they're like, this has to have all happened before. It's, this is done. Jesus is kind of prophetically saying that it's going to happen soon. And then us now as believers can see that it's actually happened. So there's that side of it. But then others would say, well, verse 10, though, says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That word nations is ethne, right? It's all peoples. And so we would say, like, well, not everybody in the world has heard the gospel. I mean, I worked for an organization that used to be called New Tribes Mission. Now they're called Ethnos. They took that word actually out of the text here, and they've said our whole purpose is to bring the gospel, plant churches among Ethnos, ethnic groups who've never heard before. So this can have happened already because there's more yet to be told. Okay, so there's some like divergence of views and interpretation of that. Will Durant says this in regards to that mention of wars and rumors of wars. He says this, War is one of the consequences. So as democracy spreads and we're getting, you know, we, we think we're quote-unquote smarter. You know, it's not like wars are any less. We stand currently today on like the precipice of potential nuclear warfare happening in our lifetime. So it's not like that goes away. And then Will Durant says, In the past... 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So in the time of Jesus, there was always like rumors of war, and it was like, man, that war, that's got to be it. God's got to be coming back now. But every generation kind of has that mindset of like, it can't get any worse. Oh, this is terrible. This is the end. Another nuclear war is coming. This is, we're the generation and Will Durant is saying, listen, that is a constant in human history. So does that help the kind of past tense view or the future tense view? It doesn't really help either of them. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, we're like, abomination of desolation, what is that? In that case, Jesus is actually pulling from Daniel, from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, where Daniel prophesies that a person would come who would do an act of perversion to the nation of Israel that would cause the end to come. And in 168 BC, there was someone who did an act like that, it was Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple. He actually went into the temple, and on the place where they would make their sacrifices, he took a pig and made a sacrifice to Zeus. Kind of in mockers this pig right in the place as an insult. And so many people, many Jews believe that what Daniel was actually prophesying had happened. When Antiochus Epiphanes did that, it had happened. But here Jesus is saying something of the nature of what Daniel is writing about is still yet to come. 
some sort of act of blatant rebellion against God in the place where the temple would be is going to happen. And when that's happening, watch out because then the end is coming near. And this, again, caused great confusion and wonder. Was it seen in the lifetime of the early church or is it still something that is in the future? Verse 19 says this, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut the days, cut short the days, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. So again, in these verses, in verses 19 and 20, people point to it and say, this type of tribulation that Jesus is talking about here, this tribulation that's so great that God actually has to cut short the days, hasn't come yet. So people are looking back at history and they're like, okay, there's been bad moments, but what he's talking about here is future still, because it's so bad that God actually has to come onto the scene and put a pause to what is going on there. That level of tribulation and difficulty, something that we've never seen before. But finally, in verses 31 through 32, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, and this is May 30, says, uh, confusing for some and clarifying for others. Verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So, those who ascribe to it's all happened before point to verse 30 and say, look, Jesus is saying, in this generation, it's all going to happen. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Seems like that's our key ticket. But others would take that verse and say, that generation means like the generation of God's people, which is going to continue on and on and on. And so they say, Jesus actually hasn't come back yet, so verse 30 hasn't been accomplished yet. Jesus isn't back yet. All of what he has said was going to happen has not been completed because he's not back yet. His second coming hasn't happened, so we're still waiting. Okay, was that clear or are you thoroughly confused now? Okay, the knot is still tied, right? The knot is still tied. This is a difficult text, and to interpret it with great clarity would not be able to be done in 20 minutes or maybe even 20 hours. And so what are we to do with this text? Firstly, we come to it with humility. We come to the text with humility. There are some areas of Scripture which are very clear to us. They are areas of first order. We see them clearly and we hold on to them. They are things that have been recorded historically in the Nicene Creed or in various creeds that are out there. They are things that our church has as a doctrinal statement where the Bible is clear on them. But then there are some areas in Scripture where we call them secondary. They are confusing. They are debatable. 
you can land on different sides of your interpretation and still be under the umbrella of brothers and sisters in Christ or even in the same church. And I imagine there are issues in, in the room right here where we take different views and different understandings on them. And so we come to the text with humility and we bring that into our relationship with each other. But secondly, and maybe most importantly, is we bring this principle when we come to Scripture. And it's that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. There are things in Scripture that are plain and easy for us to see, and those are the things that we really concentrate on because we can understand them because God is not, God doesn't want us to just be confused. God is a God of clarity and communication. And so he wants us to understand him and to know what it's like to live in that understanding. And so we come to the text with this biblical principle of focusing on the main things that are the plain things. And so out of this text here, I just want to grab in the remaining time that we have three things that are clear for us to see and understand. Three things that we can say, Mark 13 is very confusing, but there's three things that I can pull out of this text that I can see with clarity, okay? And the first is this, the call to not be deceived. In verse 5, Jesus says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. When it comes to future events, when it comes to things that will happen someday, it's very possible for us to be deceived and to be confused in the process. And Jesus knows that. So even in Jesus' own teaching, he says, don't be deceived. People are going to come and they're going to think of all kinds of things. They're going to write all kinds of books. They're going to write all kinds of articles. They're going to, you know, say all kinds of things. Don't be deceived. Don't buy into everything that is said. Our what we should be driving towards in our understanding of this text is what does it mean for me and the way I live my life as a Christian? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is teaching a pastor and he's telling him what to focus on with his people as he's leading them. And listen to what it says. Remind them, that means remind the people in your church there, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So Paul's saying things that are like murky, everybody loves to get into that. People love to argue about little things, things that, you know, maybe nobody can kind of land the plane on. Paul's like, don't let your people sit in that space of quarreling and arguing over things. But he says, do your best to present yourself to God, one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Avoid, here he comes back to it again. He's like, Timothy, I know this is going to be a problem. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them. And he's even got like examples. He's like Hymenaeus and Philetus. How do you like your name in scripture for like guys who got lost in like debates about words and stuff? And he says, they've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So Paul says, if you let people just kind of constantly 
bicker over things. You're always just like trying to analyze what's going on on these like obscure things. He says it's like two things. One, it's like gangrene. I hope nobody's had gangrene in here, right? Gangrene like eats your flesh from inside of you. It's like an internal disease that is eating you alive, he says. And then the other thing it does is it distracts other people. It causes, it says there in verse 18, you're upsetting the faith of some. You're rattling people for no reason. Paul says, don't get lost in that, Timothy. And don't encourage your people to get lost in that. So don't be deceived. The answer to it is, his answer here is, study God's word. So it's not that we don't study the word of God. I'm not saying here like we can't understand Mark 13, so just close up shop. You know, we're just going to sing songs all day. No, the answer is actually study the word of God. Set a right heading. I remember a friend of mine who was, uh, he was like a, I don't know if you call it a deep sea fisherman, you know, out in Alaska, like the TV show. What is that called? Like Last Catch or something? Or I don't know. Um, he did that for a living. And he said, you know, we used to set a heading to go to a certain spot to do fishing. And he said, if we were off just like a point five of a degree, we'd be going in the trawler for 10 hours and we'd be way off course. So he said it was really important for the captain to set the line straight so that when we're going into air, we actually get to the right place. And that's what Paul is saying here. When you are coming to areas of Scripture, when you're coming to understanding what God has to say, set your bearing straight by studying the Word of God, showing yourself approved, handling it correctly, not getting lost in the details that are gray or questionable. Secondly, so don't be deceived. Secondly, live out your faith. In this text, might not be clear, but in this text, if you look at it, there are 19 imperatives. There are 19 commands telling you to do something. So in verse 9, it says, be on guard. In verse 23, it says, be on guard. Verse 33, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. We are called to not just be like readers of things and debating over things. We're called to be people who live out our faith. What Jesus has accomplished in our lives and what he wants to accomplish through us is something that we live out. And so in Titus chapter 2, he helps us understand how we actually stay awake. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So there, Paul is saying, you're waiting for Christ's second coming, aren't you? We all are. He says, in the waiting, don't just study things, don't just analyze Mark 13 to death. What does he say? Live your lives. Live godly lives. And in the waiting, in the waiting for Christ's second coming, be that godly reflection to your neighbors, to your family, to the people who God 
brings into your life. We are a people who are in hopeful waiting. In uh, Makoto Fujimura's book, Art and Faith, he puts it this way, the art of waiting depends upon our willingness to die to ourselves and trust in God. Art Poetry and music all depend on waiting. There's no music without pauses. There is no art if we are unwilling to wait for the paint to dry. More significantly, the process of making mimics what we need to learn to do in life. Holy Saturday, that day in between Good Friday and Easter, is the critical day on which we are invited to die to ourselves. And when we are fully Able to die to ourselves, we will hear the voice of God on Easter morning. We are waiting in hope, but as we wait, we live out the life that God has called us to lead. So, don't be deceived. Live out your faith. And finally, in closing here, tell the world that Jesus is coming. There is one thing, whether you think, everything has happened, or you think near and far, or you think everything in the future, there's one thing that we all agree on, and that is that Jesus has not come back yet. The second coming is still a reality. It is still yet to happen. So all of us are called to then tell the world that Jesus is still coming, that Jesus is coming. In Acts chapter 1, question, When Jesus is about to go back to the Father, the disciples ask an end times question. They're still curious. In verse 6, it says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're like, okay, is this it now? You're glorified. You're resurrected. This is a good time for everything to happen. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is like, I got to tell you again, you don't know the date. You don't need to know the date. That's not your preoccupation right now as God's people. Don't worry about the date, okay? Because we can't pick it and nobody knows it. Even Jesus in his earthly body didn't know it. So Jesus is like, no date, okay? Here's what we are to be caught up in. But you will receive power in the Holy Spirit when he has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's our calling. We are called to take the message of Jesus' arrival to the world. Some of us are just going to stay here in Elmira. Others of us, we're going to send out on short-term trips maybe, and maybe others we will send out, we'll pray for you, you'll be a missionary somewhere, taking the message of Jesus to, to the people around the world. And what is the message that we are bringing? The message that we are bringing is what we call the good news. The first century believers use this language, the Greek word is the euangelion, the glad tidings, the good news. It's a word actually that armies used to use. Armies would come back from battle and they would go into different neighborhoods in a city like Rome or somewhere, some Roman city, and they would stand on a platform in that neighborhood and they would proclaim, your Caesar, your king, has just conquered another land. He's just defeated them. He is the victor. You are victors with him now. 
That is the word that they are using when it comes to gospel. So our calling as Christians is to announce to the world that our king has come and that he has conquered. And what has he conquered? He's conquered sin and death. So we enter into that victory with him. And so we enter in and say, our king has won. So when we look at this text, to quote William Lane one more time, the primary function of Mark 13 is not to disclose esoteric information, but it's to promote faith and obedience in a time of distress and upheaval. This text should propel us not to buy more books, not to study more things, but to live lives that say the king has come, he's conquered, and he's coming again. Jesus is our king. Let's announce that to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for being gracious in, in communicating with us your victory and the, the victory of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we too would be brought in to a life that lives the reality of Jesus as king. And Lord, would you just convince us again this morning? Would you remind us for those who are uh, maybe even uh, struggling with that idea, they've put their trust in you before and God, you've been faithful to them, but it's a little cold this morning. And Lord, if someone's here and they've never put their trust in you, and the gospel is something that they haven't believed themselves. Holy Spirit, would you just even now in their heart of hearts help them to take that step of faith. And may we be a community that lifts up Jesus uh, and we worship him. Amen.